This morning, we are continuing our, a series that we started a few weeks ago entitled Answering Our Culture. And we, we've been talking about being prepared to give an answer because we live in a world full of skeptics. We live in a world of people who, who uh, don't believe uh, the Word of God and, and they don't believe uh, a lot of things. And, they, and, there's a, and there are many different uh, objections to Christianity. And we've been taking time to talk about some of those. And so we, we've talked about that. We talked about truth in one week where we, we talked about the, 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 the belief that is out in the world that says that there is no absolute truth, which is always funny to me because by making that statement, uh, you're, you're making a, an, a statement of absolute truth because you're saying there is absolutely no truth in the world. And so it's, it's, it's impossible to defend. And we talked about truth, that it is not relative, that it is, is real, it is, it is not unchangeable. And then last week we started answering the, the skeptic who says that you can't trust the Bible. And this message today is going to be continue, continuation of that. This is a little bit different kind of a series of messages than what we normally do, but I feel it's very important in the world in which we live that we as the people of God are prepared as much as possible to be able to have conversations with people. So before we do, would you bow your head before we get into, into the message this morning and let's just ask for the Lord's help. Father, we just pray right now that you would help us. God, we thank you for your word. It is, it is so powerful, more, more powerful than, than most of us here can even begin to imagine. But God, I'm just asking that you would help us today. Speak through this weak vessel and communicate with us deep in our innermost being. Help us, God, to just let faith arise in our hearts, God. And I believe you for all of this. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. There's a story of a guy on an airplane and who was an atheist, and he was sitting next to a little girl who was traveling alone, and the, the little girl brought, a, brought out a Bible to read during the trip. And the man struck up a conversation with the little girl, and after a little while, he asked her about the Bible, and he said, do you like reading that Bible? And she said, yes, I do. And, and, she, and he said, well, how do you know it's true? And she said, because it's God's Word. And he said, well, yeah, but, but take Jonah and the whale. Do you really believe that? And the little girl, girl said, yes, I do. And the man said, uh, just continued to inquire and said, how can you explain how God could make a whale swallow a man like that? And the little girl said simply, I don't know. I guess I'll ask Jonah when I get to heaven. And the man retorted, he said, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And then she said, well, then you can ask him. So, <laughs> well, the message last week was about how, how we know we can trust the Bible. How can we trust such an ancient document? How, how can it speak today when it was written so many thousands of years ago? Can the Bible really be the word of God? And I hope to answer some of the, these concerns during today's message. But first, let's review briefly what we covered last week. And if, if, uh, if you missed last week, it's all online on our web page and also on our Facebook page. And you can watch the message. But the main question we looked at last week was regarding the topic of, uh, of how, can we trust the Bible? How do we know that the Bible we have today is accurate? Because there's accusations, people say, oh, it's been changed, it's been, it's been translated so many times that we don't even know what the original was. But, but, but we, we answered that, we looked at three questions. We, uh, can, number one, can we trust the copying process? <clears throat> number two, who actually put the Bible together? And then number three, aren't the stories of Jesus just legends? 
And we, we looked at the incredible exactness of the process of making all of the hand-copied texts of the Old Testament. And we looked at the huge amount of, of manuscript evidence that gives the New Testament unmatched credibility. Remember, we talked about that, that the Homer's Iliad is considered a very trustworthy ancient document. But the copies that we have dated, uh, are dated a thousand years after it was written, and we have 650 copies. But they say this, we, we know, we can be confident, this matches the original. But the Bible has manuscripts dating back to the first uh, uh, century, or the second century, and there are over 20,000 manuscripts. There is no other document, ancient document in the world that has the kind of documentation that the Bible does. We know that it's, it's what, was, what, what, what was actually written. And we looked at how our New Testament was put together by men who examined the documents written by apostles and their close associates. And they looked to see which of these had proven themselves to be reliable and authentic over years. We discussed how the Gospels were all written within the lifetimes of the apostles and the enemies of the church as well. Um, and that's important because if, if the, the writers of the Gospels were claiming Jesus was resurrected, then all the enemies of Jesus had to do was produce a body. And they could have shut it all down immediately, but they couldn't do that. And so today we're going to be examining two new areas. We're going to look at some contra supposed contradictions and problems within the Word, and I'm going to then close out this message, this part of the series, on, uh, by, answering, by telling you why I trust the Bible. And I'm, ex I'm excited to get to that part of the message. My intention today is to give you some things to think about, and I invite you to honestly consider what I'm about to tell you today. You may not get all your answers, uh, your questions answered today, and if that's the case, I would love for you to contact me. We can sit down together and, and, uh, and talk about your questions. Uh, but but w just listen, and, and listen with an open heart and open mind. Let's get started. Uh, let's deal with some of the contradictions and problems. So, so sure, uh, skeptics often say that the Bible is full of contradictions. And usually when, when someone says that to me and I ask them uh, to show me one, they, they can't because usually all they're doing is parroting what they've heard other people say in regard to the Bible. They don't actually know of any contradictions. They just heard people say that. And so they like to throw that in there, but they don't have any evidence. So what I did is I went in search of what uh, some of what people call contradictions and problems in Scripture. And I'm going to deal with just the three of the most common objections found on atheist and, and agnostic websites. And the first one is, is simply this. They say, skeptics say, that miracles cannot happen. Some skeptics say that since miracles are not provable, they cannot happen. For instance, they say since it's physically impossible for the Red Sea to part, it did not happen. Or since it's physically impossible for dead people to rise from the dead, then it did not happen no matter who claims that it did. And the, the presupposition behind these, these statements is this, and that is they're saying that nothing can happen except what can be observed by the senses. If you don't have that as the foundation, then you cannot say that, the, that things cannot happen. In other words, since miracles go against what has been observed with our senses, then in the natural world, then they, miracles cannot exist. There are men like David Hume and Anthony Flew, or they're the main proponents of this argument, and they, they, they argue against the believability of miracles, saying that the evidence is weak, if not non-existent. 
and they feel that a reasonable person cannot believe in miracles. But I want to just say this, first of all, just because something has not been observed does not mean it cannot happen. The, the question must be asked, is it possible that miracles exist outside of your knowledge? Is it possible that miracles exist outside of current human understanding and scientific knowledge? Does humankind know and understand everything in the universe to such a degree that we can rule out the possibility of a miracle taking place? And the answer is no. If we knew that much, we would not have scientists working on new discoveries today. We don't, we can't make that claim. The possibility of miracles cannot be denied. Secondly, we have eyewitness testimony of numerous, numerous miracles in the Bible. In our previous message about the trustworthiness of the scripture, we, we showed that the eyewitness testimony in the New Testament is absolutely reliable and it can be trusted. And it's just very simply this, enemies of the church would have exposed these stories of miracles uh, of, and of Jesus performing miracles as falsehood if they could have. If they could have said, no, that didn't happen, they would have said so, but they didn't do that. The enemies of Jesus never said, oh, there is no miracle. They just said, oh, he did it by, he did it by demonic power. So uh, the second supposed contradiction or problem is that some skeptics say there are contradictions in the accounts of the demons being cast into a herd of pigs Therefore, it's a myth. Let me explain this one. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of these like this. First of all, Mark and Luke record the story of Jesus driving out the demons. Many of us here have heard this story. They drove out the demons from a man and they sent the demons into a herd of pigs. And then you remember the, the herd of pigs ran off, uh, off a cliff into the water. They drowned themselves uh, right after that. And the story, though, also appears in the Gospel of Matthew. But in Matthew's gospel, it says there were two demon-possessed men, not just one. And they say, aha, there's a contradiction. Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Well, the answer is very simple. They are both right. They are both right because if there were two men, then there were certainly, there were certainly one man. You see what I'm saying? Let me explain more fully. More fully. The, the writers of Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke focused in their writing on the man who did the talking. The man who, who was plagued by the demons that called themselves legion. And, and, and for, I'll give an example. If I were to be visiting with you and talking about uh, the, this church here, and I would say something like, hey, man, I've got this one guy in my church that just really, really loves to sing. Well, in reality, there's more than one in the church that loves to sing, but I am referring to one in particular, and I'm, and I'm referring to that one, and, 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 but you sense the emphasis, emphasis in that statement that I'm, that there is one in particular that really likes to sing that that's what I'm talking, and that's the one I'm talking about. In this case, Mark and Luke focus on the main character, and Matthew is adding detail. You, you, uh, Mark and Luke are fo focusing on the one who did the talking. Matthew's just adding detail. You, you'll notice, here's the point about these that, that shows you there's no, uh, no contradiction because in all of the accounts, they all agree on what happened that day and what happened to the demons and what happened to the pigs. Matthew was not contradicting Mark and Luke at all. He was bringing out more detail is all he was doing. The same is true for the stories of, of, of the accounts of blind Bartimaeus, because Matthew there mentions a companion of Bartimaeus where the others, where Luke does not. It's the same situation. Then the third supposed contradiction or, or problem is that some skeptics say there are contradict, contradictory resurrection accounts. 
Uh, therefore, the resurrection could not have occur occurred. So Matthew and Mark, they mention one angel at the resurrection, and Luke mentions two. So, so which is it? Uh, well, again, it's both. They're both correct. Matthew says an angel came down and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And, and as Mary Magdalene and the other Mary approached, the angel told them not to be afraid and to look inside to see that Jesus was gone. Mark tells us that when the women arrived, the stone had already been moved and an angel was sitting inside the tomb. Luke says that when the women entered the tomb, there were two angels. So what's the scoop here? Why, why are all these different details here? Well, first of all, be clear on this. Matthew does not say that the women saw uh, the angel on the outside and then invited them in. He just says they saw an angel. He does not say where the angel was when the women saw him. Matthew begins the story from the point of view of the Roman soldiers who seeing an angel come and roll away the stone and then sit on it became terrified and they, they, they passed out and then eventually fled the scene. Uh, after the soldiers left, the women went inside the tomb, or excuse me, the angel went inside the tomb to await the women. Both Matthew and Mark uh, say that the angel invited the women to look to where Jesus had lain. They don't say whether they were outside or inside when that happened. They just tell you what happened. And as to the second angel not being mentioned in, by Matthew and Mark, it's simply, again, the emphasis being placed on the one doing the speaking. These are, th this is just a normal variation uh, that one would expect from two true accounts of the same event given from two different perspectives. For example... If you saw an accident on a, on a street corner, you saw two cars hit one another and the police began to talk about different witnesses and somebody, somebody might say, well, I saw a man over there and then somebody else will say, I saw a woman over there. They're not telling, they're not giving contradictory evidence. They're just telling things from a different perspective. And so that's, that's what's happening here. Then the last one I want to deal with before we get into why I believe the Bible uh, is dealing with the, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus because there are some people who claim that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Now, they don't, they don't go out so far as to say that he wasn't nailed to a cross because there's, there's plenty of historical evidence that he was nailed to a cross, but there are some who will say that, 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 that he either fainted on the cross and, and, or he took some kind of drug to make it appear as if he died, and they just thought he was dead, and they took him down off the cross, and they put him in the tomb, and when they put him in the tomb, the cool air there revived him, and then he emerged alive. It's, it's what's known as the swoon theory, that he just somehow swooned and he appeared to be dead. Uh, first of all, some of the problems with that is, if he went through everything he went through, it wasn't just the crucifixion. Remember, it was beatings. He had his beard ripped out. He was beaten with a, with a cat of nine tails to where his, his bones were exposed on the back. He was, he was, he was stabbed in the side. He had all these things happen to him. So it was more than just that he was nailed to the cross. But he went, when he went to the cross, he was already pretty beat up. He was, the Bible says he was unrecognizable. He was so uh, beaten that you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. So if he had gone to the tomb and then three days later, had, had, without any medical assist, assistance, had awakened inside the tomb and then come out of the tomb, people would not be looking at him and saying, Wow, look at you, because Jesus, when he appeared to the disciples, he didn't come out and just appear to them. It was like Jesus all jacked up. It was Jesus as he was, perfectly healthy, only just now with scars so he could show what he went through. But we got to remember some things about this whole idea. 
First of all, we got to remember that Roman soldiers were trained killers. They were trained killers. They knew what they were doing. When they executed someone, they knew how to make sure they were dead. It was their job to make sure crucifixions took place without incident. In fact, you may or may not know, but Roman soldiers would face execution themselves if they allowed someone to come down from a cross before they were dead. They would be crucified themselves. So they're going to be make sure that this person is dead. And they made sure with Jesus, in fact, they made sure that he was dead by stabbing him with a spear and were told that blood and water poured out. Listen, the bottom line is nobody came down from, alive from a Roman cross. And that included Jesus. And an article in the uh, Journal of American Medical Society concluded this. This is what they said. Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, this is what they said. This is not a Christian organization. They said, accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Jesus really died. They say, okay, well, he died, but he, he, there's no way that he, he really was raised. And they say, well, the story of Jesus' resurrection, that's just a legend. That's a myth that developed over time. Well, here's some problems with that. The accounts of Jesus' resurrection began very early before mythology could contaminate the accounts. In fact, immediately following his resurrection, they were, the disciples were preaching about the resurrected Christ. And, and as I said, number one, all of those who wanted to shut them up, all they had to do to stop it all was to produce a body. But they could not do that. They could not do that. And I know some people say, oh, well, the disciples, they just hid the body too well. Okay, all right. We talked about this last week. But if, if, if the disciples knew that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, we know that every one of them, except for, except for John, died horrible deaths. Here's what I know about human nature. People will die for a lie if they believe it's the truth. But nobody dies and suffers torture for a lie that they know is a lie. So, uh, so you have that problem. But the very fact that the message of the resurrection was being preached early on is, is ter terrifically important because, for instance, we, we have a creed recited by the church as early as 24 to 36 months after the death of Jesus. So two to three years after the death, it says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the, and the creed then goes on to specifically mention eyewitnesses to whom Jesus appeared. The, the fact that these accounts of Jesus' resurrection go back so early completely contradicts the assertion that the resurrection was a product of mythology that developed during the decades following Jesus' life. Because here's what we know. Studies, people who, much smarter than I, did studies, and they, they will tell you that, that the rate at which legend accrued in the ancient world, the studies say that it takes a minimum of two generations for mythology to corrupt a solid core of historical fact. That there was nowhere near that amount of time in the case of Jesus. The proclamation of Jesus, uh, that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, began, began immediately after his death. 
In fact, when the Apostle Paul mentions that Jesus appeared uh, to 500 people at one time, he says that, that many of the 500 were still alive when he wrote it. You know what Paul was saying, in effect, when he said that? He said, hey, if you don't believe me, go ask some of those other. They're still alive. Go ask the witnesses. They're, they're still around. You can ask them yourself. So the evidence shows that the resurrection was a real and historical event. Now I want to get into the main part of what I want to talk about today. And this, I'm excited about this part. Why I trust the Bible. These are so powerful for me. Number one, I trust the Bible because of its incredible unity in diversity. The Bible was written by about 40 different people over a period of about 1,500 years, yet all of those writers are in complete agreement. How many of you have, you know, have a family, and let's just say, when you, when you ask the question, you're going to go out to eat, and you say, where does everyone, everybody want to eat tonight? How many of you get complete agreement? <laughs> yeah. No, no. in fact, most of the time you get, I don't know, I don't care. I swear, somebody needs to open a restaurant called I Don't Care. They'll make a killing. Because then when they say, I don't care, you're there. Okay, let's go there. But, but there are many people who lived in different places. They did not know each other, and they are in complete agreement. The authors are, are men of, of different occupations, different lifestyles, yet they're in complete agreement. There were doctors, there were tax collectors, there were fishermen, there were shepherds and kings and farmers and judges and religious leaders, yet they're all in complete agreement. And if you think that's no big deal, let me challenge you to find any 20 people in our world who, to agree about anything perfectly, especially about religious issues, and you're going to have a test that's of impossible proportions. There's incredible unity and diversity in the Bible, and that's amazing to me. Number two, I trust the Bible because of its incredible durability. You know what? Attempts to destroy the Bible have always been a part of this remarkable, remarkable book's history. In 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian passed, issued an edict to destroy all Christians and to destroy their Bible. The persecution that followed as a result of this edict was one of the mo most brutal periods of Roman history. And towards its end, Diocletian ordered a monument to be erected, and on it were these words inscribed. This is what it said. The name Christian is extinguished. 25 years later, Diocletian was dead. And his successor, Constantine, had legalized Christianity. And he himself had ordered Bibles to be prepared at government expense. In 1776, Voltaire, a French philosopher, announced this. He said, quote, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Yet 100 years later, the Geneva Bible Society was using his very own house and his own printing press to print and store Bibles. Ironically enough, at a public auction, auction held 100 years to the day of Voltaire, Voltaire's prediction, the first edition of his work sold for 11 cents, and a Bible manuscript was purchased for over half a million dollars. Many, many efforts have been made to destroy the Bible and to keep it out of the hands of, of common people, 
But in spite of fierce attacks in modern times by secular philosophies and totalitarian governments, do you know that more Bibles were printed in more languages than any other book in every single year of the 20th century? Many people have tried to destroy the Bible, tried to destroy the Word of God, but 2,000 years after Christ came to earth, it is still here, and it is still powerful, and it is still changing lives. The Bible very, very plainly declares its own durability. In Isaiah 48, it says, The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the Word of our God stands forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God promised that his word would endure and he's been faithful to that promise. The third reason I trust the Bible is I trust it because of its incredible truthfulness. It's incredible truthfulness. The Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is very detailed in, in many places about historical and geographical information. And archaeology has confirmed that, that, the, that the Bibles, when the Bible cites a, a city or a person, they were real places and they were real people. In fact, at times historians have said, oh, this person's not real, this is just made up. And then an archaeological find comes around that shows the Bible was right, the historian was wrong. In fact, I mentioned this last week, the only reason archaeology exists is because of the Bible. Because people who were wanting to try to discover ancient artifacts, they started saying, what if we went to the places the Bible described and started digging to try to find artifacts? And that was the birth of archaeology. That's how it all started. And, and they began discovering over and over and over again, when the Bible says something, they found the evidence that it's true. We know that it's historically accurate. Uh, the, the, and if I can trust the historical parts, then I can trust the rest. But here's the, the thing I like about the Bible. I love the fact that the Bible is completely truthful when talking about the flaws of its great heroes. I mean, Moses and Paul were murderers. David was an adulterer and a, and a murderer. Jacob was a liar. Paul persecuted believers uh, in Jesus. Jonah ran from God. And not only that, Jonah was a bigot. He wanted the Ninevites to die. He was, a, he was a prejudiced bigot, and he was still one of the great prophets of God. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. The, and, and the Bible tells us the truth about all of these great characters. But the writings of other religions make their characters out as if they were perfect. Perfect, but the Bible never tries to hide the flaws of those whom God redeems. And that speaks to me of its authenticity. And that leads me to the final reason I trust the Bible. And this is so powerful for me. I trust the Bible because it works. I trust the Bible because it works for the past 43 years. It has been my goal to live according to the principles of this book. And there have been times 
when I have failed to live up to this standard, and I can tell you I regret it every single time. But I have discovered over the years that when I live according to the teachings of the Bible, my life works. Things, I'm not saying that life is easy. I'm not saying that things always go the way that I want it to. Sometimes the truth is obedience is the hardest path to follow of all. But I have learned over the years that when I live according to the principles taught in Scripture, then I experience the presence and the power of God in my life every single day. Scripture works inside of us. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It, can, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. So we see there, it teaches us what is true. The Bible, the message found in the Bible is not a message that is taught anywhere else in the world. The message is God loves you, but you're se you've separated yourself from him through your sin. And, but Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins because the penalty for a sin is death. And, and the Bible teaches that you can be forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross and that God's mercy is greater than any other, any sin that you can imagine and that there is life and power and healing in the name of Jesus. It teaches that if you give your life to him, that you will be filled with the presence of God and you will experience peace that passes all human understanding. It teaches us that the world belongs to Him. It teaches us that the, that the past belongs to Him. It teaches us that the future be belongs to Him. It teaches that the word, that the Lord is, is, is King over all creation and that teach, teaches us that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible teaches us what is true. But it also helps us realize what is wrong in our lives. It's like a mirror. How many of you this morning when you got up and got ready to come to church, you looked in the mirror to make sure your hair was all combed right? And some of you, I can't tell. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like, you ever look at somebody and say, did he not look in the mirror this morning? Has that ever happened to you? I think that, I wonder that sometimes, but it's neither here nor there. I get sidetracked once in a while, but but the Bible is like that. It helps us to look and it tells us what our lives should look like. And when we look in there, it's like a mirror and we can see, oh, my spiritual hair is messed up. I've never said that before. That's a new one. My spiritual hair is messed up. I better get a haircut. I got, I got something wrong in my life. It shows us what's wrong in my life because until I can see what's wrong in my life, I can't ever do anything about it. Isn't that true? You ever had somebody get mad at you because you didn't do something? Only the problem was nobody ever told you you were supposed to do it. Every, every husband in here should be, have their hand up right now. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just teasing. But um, sort of. Um, <clears throat> um, but the, the Bible helps us realize what's right and wrong because because we can never let the world define our concept of right and wrong. For one thing, the world's definition of right and wrong changes every other day. I mean, things that are considered wrong now, they were considered right 20 years ago. 
you know, to be able to actually say there is truth or to, to say somebody, to tell somebody that they're wrong. You know, you can't do that now. And, and things that are considered right now, 20, 30 years ago, were, were never, people never dreamed that they would be. So the world changes. So it's a changing target. You, you can't trust the world because, uh, and not only that, on one hand, people will try to make you feel guilty over the craziest little things you know, like uh, some microaggression. That's the word they like to use today. And, you know, they'll do, they'll say, oh, you're, you're wrong, you're evil, and make you feel guilty. But then on the other hand, they'll make excuses for destructive behavior. Oh, they have a right to riot. Oh, now I'm just getting in, I'm going to get in trouble here. There are people in this world that right now that will tell you it's wrong to eat meat, that that's evil. There are people, there are people in this world that will tell you it's, it's, morally wrong to own a pet there are people who who will who will tell you that it's that that you do any any harm to an animal of any kind for any reason you know whether you're hunting or not and whether you're getting food to eat doesn't make any difference it's all wrong but here's the here's the crazy thing and this is why you can't trust the world because of the contradictions that are there in the world uh, because those same people will very often almost 100 percent often violently defend the, the practice of abortion where an unborn human child is literally ripped apart and discarded like trash. But don't hurt the puppy. I say don't hurt either one. The world has no clue about what's right and what's wrong. And the world's ideas about that are changing all the time. The Bible puts an end to the confusion. It corrects us when we're wrong. It convicts us of sin. We, we can look to it for guidance. That's why the writer of Hebrews wrote this. For the word of God is active, excuse me, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It teaches us to turn our back our, our, on sin. It teaches us how to love and even what love means. It teaches us how to give. It teaches us how to forgive and it teaches us how to treat others it teaches us how to raise our children it teaches us how to have a healthy and strong marriage it teaches us how to walk with Christ it teaches us how to do what is right and you know what the most to me the most powerful proof for the reliability of the new testament can be found in the fact that it works Listen, when it says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That verse really works. There have been so many times when my mind was chastised and I would go to that word and I'd say, I'm going to do what you say, Lord. And I took my cares and I cast them upon him. And all of a sudden in the middle of a storm with the winds blowing and the waves billowing, I was able to stand there and say, I have the peace of God. And even I don't understand how. When the Bible says in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight, which literally means he will make it clear which way you'll go. He'll give you direction. That verse really works. When I don't know what to do and I don't know where to turn, when I just trust God and say, Lord, I'm just leaving it in your hands. 
He always, every time, makes it clear to me where I need to go. When the Bible says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That verse really works. It doesn't mean that I get everything I want, but I get an answer for him every single time. You know, for those that say, uh, you know, that, that you can pray and get whatever you want, then all I can say is they must not have had a very good parent because God is a perfect father. And, and as a father, I would never give my children everything they want because everything they want is not good for them. But that verse works. I have gone to God many, many times in prayer and I've said, Lord, I'm asking for this. And, and God has answered more prayers than I can count over the years. I could go on and on and on reciting verse after verse after verse. I believe in the Bible because it works, because it really makes a difference. It delivers what it promises. The word of God has changed millions of people over the centuries. God has used the, his word to change me from, from being a geeky party type to a geeky preacher type. You know, you kind of, but, but, but seriously, it's changed me from being a self-centered person to someone who strives, not always does it right, but I strive to put God and other people ahead of my own desires. He's changed me from a deceiver into a person with the privilege of proclaiming his truth. You may not know this about me, but when I was younger, I was a chronic liar. I lied about everything, even if I didn't need to lie. And yet then God saved me and he said, not only am I going to save you, but I'm going to give you this incredible privilege that you're going to stand in front of people this absolute liar that can't even tell the truth from a lie and you're going to get to stand in front of people and speak truth to them. God's changed me from being a user to a giver. I'm not perfect yet, but God through his word is helping me. He's changing me. God's word helps enjoy the full life that God has for all who call on Christ as their savior. I know that the Bible is true because I've seen it change lives. I look at Sam every Sunday morning in this place. I, I hear the stories about the trip that the Sunday school class took and, and the laughter that he had. He was laughing so hard he couldn't even catch his breath and he was having such a good time. And I can't even pick sure that happening in Sam's life a few years ago because he has gone from being a person with no hope addicted to drugs to being somebody who is a beacon of light for the cause of Christ who loves Christ with all his heart he has been changed by the power of God all glory to Jesus we love Sam but Sam gets no glory for that all glory goes to Jesus Listen, regardless of what you may have heard, what you told, were told in college, or what you heard some skeptics say, the New Testament is a reliable historical document. And it tells the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as told by eyewitnesses to the events. And it spread like wildfire throughout the known world because the story was too powerful to be refuted. The New Testament didn't come into existence because of one person or even a handful of people who then decided what would be in the, in the New Testament. But literally thousands of faithful Christians over a period of hundreds of years attested to the authority of these writings. This is a book for which many people have given their lives. Why? Why would you give your life? Because it works. The Bible has tremendous personal impact because here's what we need to understand some of us even as, as believers we, we don't value the word as deeply as we should 
But here's what we need to know. Scripture is meant to transform. It's not meant to sit on a coffee table as a decoration, gathering dust on a shelf somewhere. It's not meant to be carried around so that you'll look spiritual. It's meant to be read and acted upon with the help of the Holy Spirit. And listen to me very clearly. If you read the Bible, believe it, and apply it to your life, I promise you, you will never be the same. That's why I believe the Bible. Would you bow your head, close your eyes. Father, as we come into your presence, we're in awe of this book that you gave us. And Lord, really what it is, is just a revelation of you until the day we get to see you in person. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to grasp the power of this word. God, that you'd help us to see why we can trust it especially looking around and we see the lives that have been changed. And God, there may, be, there may be some that are in this place or watching the live stream that they may be thinking to themselves, you know what, I need my life changed. Maybe they heard the testimony of Jerry during the baptismal service and, and he said, I was just tired of it all. I was tired of living the way I was living. I was tired of doing that, the things I did before. And maybe they heard that and they're sitting there thinking, I'm sick and tired of living my life the way that I'm living it. It's just not working. I don't have the peace that I need. I don't have the joy that I, of, of, uh, in my life. I don't have any of those things. And God, maybe today they're saying, okay, I need to let Jesus, I need to let him in. I need to give Jesus a shot. I need to give my life over to him because I've seen him change the lives of others. And I know that his word says that he's no respecter of persons, which means that what he did for Sam He'll do for anybody that comes to him and, and puts their life in his hand. What he's done for Pastor Dave, he'll do for anybody. What he did for Jerry, he'll do for anybody. What he did for Kelly, he'll do for anybody. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody watching this, listening to this, their heart is not right, I pray, God, that in Jesus' name, I'm just asking God, I'm helpless, I know that. But I'm asking for your spirit to draw them. That you would make them uncomfortable in their sin at this very moment. And God, in this place today, or maybe at home watching the live stream, that they'd make a decision to say, you know what, I'm going to get into the Word. I'm going to learn about this Jesus. And I'm going to let Him change my life. I'm going to surrender to Him. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around, <clears throat> this is a holy moment. But if there's anybody here that would say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. Now, listen, I'm not going to embarrass you. That's not the goal of this. But if you'd say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me because I, I need to make a decision. I'm, I'm like Jerry. I'm tired of my life the way it is. I'm tired of being living without peace. I'm tired of living without joy. I'm tired of trying to have to hide and put on a mask when other people are around. I'm ready to, to, to let Jesus do something real in me. If that's you and you'd say, I just would like you to pray for me because I want to surrender to Jesus. Would you slip your hand up right where you are? Yes, yes. Is there anybody else? Yes. You can put it right hand right back down. Is there anybody else? Maybe you're on the live stream. and you can, you can just put in the comments, just say, pray for me. 
Just say, pray for me. And I promise you we will. We'll just wait a second longer if there's anybody else. Say, Pastor, pray for me. All right, listen, I'm going to pray. But I want you to understand this. While I'm praying, you need to pray. Because I can't surrender to Jesus for you. All I can do is pray for you, but you just need to pray to Him. And say, Lord, in your own words, just say, Lord, here I am. I surrender. I've tried it my way. It didn't work. I confess that I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you make me a child of God? I'm ready to live for you. That's all it takes. A simple moment. So you pray a prayer like that while I pray for you. Father, you see those that raise their hands, those that may be on the live stream. And God, right now, they're praying a prayer like that. They're just simply saying, Lord, here I am. I tried it my way. It didn't work. But I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've made a mess of my life. And Jesus, I need you. And they're confessing their sin to you. And you said that you promised in your word that you would forgive us our sin when we confess it to you. You, That's why you died on the cross, to pay for that sin. And I pray, God, that as they surrender to you, that today would be a day that a load is lifted from their shoulders. Today would be a day that peace begins to flood their souls. Today would be a day that joy begins to bubble up from within and, and begins to flow out of them to such a degree that people around them say, man, what happened to you? God, I just pray that you would change lives today. And Lord, I pray for everybody else in this room. Those that know you, that walk with you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to value your word that you've given to us more deeply. You have preserved it for us for centuries. When when people of the world, people, your enemies of of God have, have tried to stamp it out, it has flourished. And that's not by accident, God. That's because of the hand of God preserving it because this is how you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. So God, I pray you would help us to value your word. Help us to get back in your word. If if we've been slipping and we haven't been digging in and, and, and looking in your word to see where we don't match up and using it like that mirror, God, I pray you'd help us to make a new commitment and a fresh surrender God, that you would, you would get us into your word because through the washing of the word, our lives are changed. It's through the renewing of our mind that we are transformed. That's what Paul said. And God, I pray you would help us to be changed by the washing of your word, changing our lives. And we thank you for it. And God, as we prepare to leave this place, I pray, God, that you would just use us wherever we go Help us to be aware of your presence in our lives. Help us to be aware of your calling, that we are missionaries. We're we're on a mission wherever we work, wherever we shop, wherever we go, that there are people, you're going to set up divine appointments for us to be able to tell about Jesus. God, give us the, the courage and the boldness to step out and just tell them our story. And God, I pray that you would just have your way in us, have your way working through us. We pray all of it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.